0: Welcome back to the Der Show. Before we get to the mixed legacy of uh, Daniel Ellsberg, um, the man who just recently died, who was the person who gave uh, the New York Times and others the Pentagon Papers. Before we get to that, two updates. Uh, Number one, last night, I actually spoke at the Chilmark Library. Remember the Chilmark Library? Little library in Chilmark, Massachusetts, which I've been coming to for 53 years had banned me, had canceled me, had uh, uh, for seven years they had invited me to speak. I was their most popular speaker. Then they banned me and I threatened to sue them. So they gave in, came to a compromise. They said, all right, you can talk, but only 25 people. And so they had 25 people last night. They reserved the spot for me and my wife, but uh, nobody else could get a reserved spot. It had to be either take your chances and come. And I I, I spoke last night and everybody loved it. It was, uh, you know, I gave a speech about not the book that I've been talking about mostly, but about um, my other new book, Dershowitz on Killing, How the Law Decides Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die. And I spoke about capital punishment and abortion and organ transplants and uh, seatbelt laws and you name it, anything to do with death and life. And Then there were questions. Not a single person asked me a question either about Donald Trump or about being banned. But the Vineyard Times, the Martha's Vineyard Times, who has printed over 100 letters attacking me and condemning me and calling for me to be banned. The Vineyard Times didn't even report on the speech. I gave the speech finally. But the Vineyard Times didn't even report on it. It's as if it never happened because it went well. Believe me, if it hadn't gone well, they would have had it on the front page. Uh, We did learn yesterday that the library had gotten lots and lots and lots of calls from people demanding that I be banned, demanding that I be canceled. And somebody who came to the event gave me a sign that uh, he says had been all over the vineyard. I didn't see it, but it's a big sign. And it says, impeach Alan Dershowitz. Uh, Well, I not in office, so I can't be impeached, but it does reflect the attitudes of what people on Martha's Vineyard, particularly in Chilmark, think. And there's only one reason for it, only because I defended Donald Trump. If I hadn't defended Donald Trump, I'd still be the most popular liberal on Martha's Vineyard. But, um, you know, one... one and, and, of course, I came to the Vineyard, as I said yesterday, to defend Ted Kennedy, a Democrat. And then, while well, on the Vineyard, I defended Alan Cranston, a Democrat, I also defended Bill Clinton, a Democrat. And I read from a letter that Barack Obama, a Democrat, sent me on my 75th birthday saying, continue to do the mischief that you've been doing. I think he regrets having sent that. But um, it was just the perfect example of of canceled culture. As I think I mentioned also, I had dinner with an old friend on the vineyard and uh, in a restaurant in Chilmark. And he got three phone calls uh, that night and the next day saying, if you ever, ever are seen talking to Alan Dershowitz again, you will be canceled and you will not be allowed to be spoken to. I mean, it's 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 like I would say it's like childish high school, but it's more like uh, political incorrectness in the old Soviet Union, of course, in the old Soviet Union, they were put in prison. I have only been canceled, um, but it was interesting that the Vineyard Times didn't even report on the speech, even though they must have written 20 articles on how I was banned and how maybe there's a compromise, etc. Once the event occurred, not interested because it was a good event and, and, and nothing bad happened. Okay, next update. Today we saw testimony from John Durham, the author of the Durham report, and John Solomon put it very well. Um, he said that uh, John Durham must have read my book, at Trump, because the testimony he gave was exactly the same as w- what's in my book. And that is the Justice Department has applied a double standard um, to Trump and to everybody else. And the particular focus was on the difference between the investigation of Donald Trump and the investigation of Hillary Clinton and John Durham, who's objective and neutral, but he's being condemned, of course, by the left for coming out and telling the truth, um, basically said, no, there was not a neutral and objective standard. It, uh, the, the criteria for investigating uh, a person was much, much lower for investigating uh, Donald Trump than it would have been for investigating Hillary Clinton, and that the uh, Justice Department and the FBI uh, distorted uh, justice and violated, they didn't say this, I'm saying this, The biblical prohibition against judging faces uh, do not recognize faces in the Bible. Well, the Justice Department and the FBI not only recognize faces, made the nature and level and degree of investigation turn on the faces and who the faces were. So do we have a double standard of justice in this country? Yes, we do. The Durham uh, report confirms that. Is it based on whether you're a Democrat or Republican? I don't think so. I think the double standard of justice came out primarily against anybody or anything associated with Donald Trump. After all, probably a majority of the FBI agents are, are Republicans. Um, I would bet that. Um, but many of them are, are are extreme anti-Trump people. And one understands that. These are people who care about law and order. And you know Trump has uh, not been... Uh, the most focused on always obeying the letter and spirit of the law. So I can see why FBI agents would be opposed to Donald Trump uniquely. So, But what starts is as a get Trump can turn into get Republicans, can turn into uh, get Jews, can turn into get Catholics, can turn into get anybody. Once you start focusing on a person or on a party or on a religion or on ethnicity or on anything other than the evidence, you're, you're destroying the American legal system. And that's why I wrote Get Trump. That's why I hope you'll read Get Trump. And that's why I hope you'll read the Durham uh, report, which is Get Trump, but uh, done by a government uh, objective um, uh, agent. So uh, I'm, I'm pleased with the Durham report, which I've read. And I'm pleased with John Durham's testimony. I'm glad Congress called him. And I'm glad we have a system of checks and balances And I think we're going to see that system of checks and balances operating with Hunter Biden, because although, as I said yesterday, I think Hunter Biden got a fair deal on the three charges, on the charges of delaying his taxes and on the charges of not filling out a report about his drug use, although I think the drug use is much more important and much more serious than the taxes. I think on balance, those three charges should have resulted in a plea bargain with no imprisonment. What we don't know. And what the Durham report indicates we should know and must know is whether a different standard of investigation and, and prosecution uh, applied to Hunter Biden than to Donald Trump. That's what we have to know. And, Donald, and, and, and Hunter Biden's lawyers, who I know and who are very good, um, one of them announced, case is over. He has no more vulnerability. He's free. He's safe. Well, then he can't plead the Fifth Amendment when he's called in front of Congress, and he will be called in front of Congress. And he will be asked about Burisma. He will be asked about the laptop. He will be asked about those 17 tapes. And he's probably not going to be able to plead the fifth. He can still argue, look, even though my lawyer said there's no vulnerability, who knows? The Justice Department may come after me. But if he pleads the fifth and the Justice Department is finished with their investigation, they just give him immunity. And if they give him immunity, then he has to testify. Now, the question is: would the Justice Department give him immunity? Or would Congress have to give him immunity? That's an interesting question. And we'll see how that how that plays out. But I can tell you that the Hunt and Biden case, the Hunter Biden case, is not over. Maybe over in the court of law, it may not be over in the court of law. We're not sure. We have conflicting reports from the prosecutor and the defense attorney, as very commonly happens. But uh, we haven't heard from Congress. And thank God for checks and balances. Uh, and I'm always a little bit more comfortable as a civil libertarian when the government is split. I get nervous when both houses of Congress, the Supreme Court and the presidency, are all under the control of one party. I, that's not going to happen now for a while because of the the Supreme Court. But uh, we do have a divided Congress. And who knows what will happen in the next election. Um uh, the next election is presidential, senatorial, and congressional. So uh, things could change. Things are unlikely to change in the Supreme Court. There are no imminent retirements that are uh, obvious. Uh, the oldest justice now is uh, Justice Thomas, and uh, he is good health and relatively young, and most of the other justices are, are quite young. So we may have the current Supreme Court in, uh, without changes, um, perhaps for a decade, uh, for a long, long period of time. That would be one of the longest periods of time in history. And as as presidents appoint younger and younger justices, we're going to see justice, justices stay on the court and and, and the, the, the Supreme Court itself will not change for long periods of time. That, that isn't good. I would like to see the Constitution amended. don't think it will be amended to provide term limits for Supreme Court justices. Remember, when Supreme Court justices were first appointed after the Constitution was enacted, the average life expectancy was uh, 20, 25 years lower than it is today. By the way, that's a myth, too. You know, Jefferson lived to 83 Adams, 90. uh, A lot of the the uh, framers lived a long time. If you were 50, your life expectancy was probably into the 60s or 70s. It's that when you consider life expectancy from birth, you consider infant mortality and young children's mortality, which was rampant at the time of the framing. But even at the time of the framing, if you made it to 50, you had a pretty good chance of making it to 70. But in any event, a lot of people died a lot younger than they did And they do today. So when the framers had in mind life appointments, they hadn't mind people being appointed at age 60 and living until 70 or appointed at 50 and living until 60. Um, Two of the greatest justices in history, three of the greatest justices in history, um, Justice Holmes, uh, Justice uh, Brandeis, and, uh, and recently deceased Justice Ginsburg were all appointed at age 60. And they all lived long, long time. Uh, Holmes lived until his 90s and Brandeis his 80s and, and Ginsburg her 80s. So there's no guarantee. And that's why term appointments are good. I think a, a 15 year term or a 20 year term for a justice would make a lot of sense. But you need a constitutional amendment for that. And that's unlikely to occur. There are people who argue maybe you can do it by congressional statutes as long as you don't do it retroactively. I don't think that can be done, but we'll we'll wait and see. It hasn't been done, so it hasn't been tested. All right, let's turn to Dan Ellsberg. For those of you who don't know, and if you're a young person, you might not know, um, Dan Ellsberg uh, was a very important person in American history. He brought about the end of the Nixon uh, presidency. Without him, Nixon would not have been investigated and impeached. So here's the Stories, so so you know it. Uh, the um, Daniel Ellsberg worked for the Rand Corporation and had contracts with the uh, Defense Department and had access to the Pentagon papers, which were you know several thousands uh, analysis of how we got into the Vietnam War, what's going on in Vietnam War, how we lied about casualties in the Vietnam War, were highly classified information, and Donald Ellsberg decided to engage in an act of civil disobedience, a crime. He committed a crime. He hid the Pentagon Papers, a copy of them, and took them home with him. Um, Remind you of somebody else, President Trump. But he did it deliberately, and he did it to make them public. Trump didn't do that. Um, and, And interesting thing, of course, Ellsberg was never never successfully prosecuted so he took the the papers home and uh in those days they didn't have scanners or anything like that and and he had a a group of people who copied every page by hand in a xerox machine that did page by page i know all about this because i was one of the lawyers in the case Um, and um one of the people he, he gave them to the new york times to the washington post and he also gave them to a united states senator from alaska named Mike Ravel, And Mike Ravell retained me pro bono, didn't charge a fee, it was in the public interest, uh, to represent him because he was being investigated because when it didn't look like the Times or the Washington Post would publish the Pentagon Papers, they were being threatened with criminal prosecution under the Espionage Act, the same act that Donald Trump has been indicted under, really history does repeat in cycles. When uh, they were threatened with that, Senator Gravel courageously took the Pentagon Papers, went to the floor of the Senate and read them into the congressional record, even though he was only chairman of the Committee on Buildings and Grounds or something like that. He was not on a committee that had anything to do with um, the war in Vietnam or the Pentagon Papers, but he did it. And uh, I was um, asked to represent him and the uh, publishing company Beacon Press in Boston, which published the Pentagon Papers. By the way, the most boring read. I had to read the Pentagon Papers. Unbelievably boring. Um, you know, one, one out of every 500 pages, there might have been some interesting thing that popped up, but it was boring as could be. I had to read them, and I had to defend them, and I did. And what happened was, once this happened, Richard Nixon said to his people, hey, this guy, Ellsberg, he's really hurting the country. We have to find out about him, discredit him. And so the plumbers, the same people, or some of the same people that went into um, the, oh, the uh, uh, hotel and, and the Democratic headquarters um, and uh, at Watergate, uh, broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office and stole records, psychiatric records of Daniel Ellsberg, and they were caught. And um, uh, as a result of that, the criminal case against Daniel Ellsberg was dismissed. I know because I consulted on that case. My dear friend Leonard Burdine was his lawyer, and I was working at the same time for Senator Gravel. So we worked together. We shared some legal research. I got to meet Daniel Ellsberg, And um, um, uh, the case against Daniel Ellsberg was dismissed, Um, but not the Pentagon Papers case. That went to the Supreme Court, and we know the result of that. Um, Both the Washington Post and the New York Times were told, look, we may be able to come after you criminally after you've published the papers, but we can't stop you from publishing the papers. You have to take your chance. And they published the papers. Nobody Nobody came after them. And ultimately, the judge dismissed the case against Daniel Ellsberg based on the break-in of the psychiatrist's office and other violations of Ellsberg's constitutional rights. So the question remains, was Ellsberg a hero? Was Ellsberg a villain? And the answer to that question is yes. Um, There were elements of both. Let's be very clear about the law. What Ellsberg did was a crime. Nobody has ever really claimed Otherwise, he inappropriately disclosed highly classified material, knowing it was classified. And of course, he, unlike President Trump, couldn't declassify anything. He just took it home, and gave it to the New York Times. That was a crime. That's a violation of the Espionage Act. He was guilty of that, even though the case was thrown out on constitutional and procedural grounds. He acted as a civil disobedient, he admitted it. He admitted it, um, that he was, he knew he was violating the law. He defended the case on other grounds and succeeded and won the case, but he was a criminal. And, um, but the New York Times was not, uh, in my view, at least. The Supreme Court has never passed on that, but they did say no prior restraint, but he could have, New York Times could have been prosecuted as could have the Washington Post, and we would have seen whether it's constitutionally protected to publish material that you know was stolen and had been classified. Probably that court would have said yes. Probably today's court might say no. I don't know what the answer to that question will be. But we have to distinguish between the person who stole the material and the person who published the material. There's no First Amendment right to steal material. There is a First Amendment right to publish material. And so... People like Daniel Ellsberg and Chelsea Manning and uh, so many of the others who have stolen the material, stolen the material, have committed crimes. Uh, My other client, WikiLeaks, uh, and Julian Assange, he didn't steal anything either. He's the New York Times. He's the New York Times writ small um, because he's not a big publisher, but he was publishing material given to him by So he's in the same category as the New York Times and the Washington Post, whereas Ellsberg is in the same category as Chelsea Manning and others who were in the Army or in the State Department and stole, stole the material. So, you know, those are very interesting uh, distinctions. Um, You might apply those distinctions back even to the Rosenberg case. You know, the Rosenbergs didn't steal the material. Uh, their brother-in-law stole the material, a guy named Greenglass, gave it to them. If they had given it to the New York Times, I don't know what would have happened, but they didn't. They gave it to the Russians, the Soviet Union. So they were uh, convicted and executed as spies. Um, uh, I wrote a review of a book about the Rosenbergs back when I was a kid lawyer. And uh, I think the title of the review, or at least the heading of the review was are the, were the Rosenbergs guilty or were they framed? And my answer was yes. They were. He was guilty, not her. He was guilty and he was framed. They tampered with the evidence in order to convict a guilty person. That's happened to me a number of times in my career. Happened in the O.J. Simpson case. The police believed he was guilty and they tampered with the evidence. And it happened in the Klaus von Bülow case. The children thought he was guilty and they tampered with the evidence. So uh, we we see cases like that and it I don't think it began with the Rosenberg case, but uh, it certainly was prominent there as well. So getting back to the Ellsberg case, I think it's, it's fair to say that legally he was a villain. And you can argue that morally he was a hero. Uh, he brought about some great results. He may have contributed to the somewhat earlier ending of the Vietnam War than might have happened a lot later than a lot of us think should have happened. But he may have saved lives uh, during the Vietnam War period. And uh, he certainly contributed to the uh, removal of Richard Nixon from office. If you think that was a good thing, as I do, I favored that impeachment. I favored that if it had gone forward. He had committed impeachable offenses. Um, So if you think that was a good thing and you think that Daniel Ellsberg contributed to that, and he did. It was a long chain of causation. I mean, what happened is as a result of them breaking into his office, same people, broke into Watergate then the investigation began, then Republicans and Democrats alike went after him, and uh, he resigned, and if he hadn't been resigned, if he hadn't resigned, he would have been impeached, without a doubt, and he might have been impeached uh, almost unanimously, and convicted by the Senate almost unanimously. That's what his Republican colleagues were telling him, and remember, it was so unnecessary. It was the election was an overwhelming landslide. It was running against McGovern. I think McGovern won two states. Um, and 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 uh, obviously, uh, Nixon won all the rest of them, and they were an enormous number of them. And so uh, it, 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 it was foolhardy, unnecessary. Reminds me a little bit of a current president uh, doing things that hurt himself, were unnecessary. Of course, there's no comparison. What Nixon did was... He uh, destroyed evidence, he bribed witnesses, and there's no allegation that Donald Trump did anything like that. And that's why I think that Donald Trump does not meet the Nixon standard, and that's why Republicans haven't joined with Democrats in um, seeking his prosecution or his um, uh, disqualification from running for uh, president. Okay, let's turn to some letters um, The first letter, which came while the show was on, is define cancel culture. And I agree with you. Cancel culture is not easy uh, to define, but uh, I know it when I see it. Um, I mean, what happened to me is a perfect example of cancel culture. Um, I was one of the most popular speakers in the United States. I got calls from all over the country, um, certainly on Martha's Vineyard, every single town, on Martha's Vineyard, I spoke, and then I was canceled. People said no, and they made excuses. Up. Oh, he, 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 there were too many crowds. Uh, there were too many people. Uh, he's controversial. No, that's nonsense. I defended Trump, so I was canceled. And I was canceled by Temple Emanuel in New York. I was canceled by the wrong, by, by, by other places, uh, by the 92nd Street. Well, that's cancel culture. Cancel culture is... You go over to a man who had dinner with me and say, If you ever are seen having dinner with Dershowitz, nobody will have anything to do with you. That's cancel culture. Um, you know, everybody has the right to associate with anybody they want to, but public libraries don't have the right to uh, cancel speakers based on who they represented. And um, synagogues uh, and places like 92nd Street Y act immorally when they cancel people based on things that are unproven or they don't like or are wrong. So it's hard to define, but we know it when we see it. You know, Potter Stewart once said about hardcore pornography, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. So cancel culture. I know it when I see it. Okay, here's some questions. Professor, why aren't you defending John Adams? This is in response to, why aren't you defending Donald Trump? This is in response to, Uh, The statement I made that, you know, my wife doesn't want me to do it. I I defend people only once. What would John Adams do? Would he defy his wife and give the best counsel that can be found to an abusive state? Unforgettably, twice defending a defendant? Um, The history books could not be sorrowful reading of regrets. Can one at least be in contact with the lawyers? Now, look, I defended Donald Trump once uh, over the objections of wife, family and friends got cancelled, lost a lot of friends but I do have a general rule that I don't like to defend somebody more than once because I don't want to be seen as the consigliore to a criminal or a criminal organization I like to defend a case when there's a case, a particular case not a particular person or a particular but you know I, I made exceptions, I mean I defend Israel, uh, that's not a person and I defend Israel repeatedly. I also criticize Israel when it does wrong, but I defend Israel. But I think here on balance, it's much better for me, my family, and I think basically for the country. If I continue to do what I'm doing, and that is continue to defend when I see conduct that's defensible and protected under the Constitution, and be free to condemn when I see conduct that's condemnable. I think that gives me more credibility. It gives me more freedom to act as I believe. And at this age in my life, I think I'm entitled to that. So um, I'm going to continue to defend Donald Trump against accusations which I think are unfounded or which are not justified. And I'm going to continue to be critical of him and other Republicans when they do things or say things that are subject to criticism, if not necessarily criminal prosecution. So I appreciate the letter and I appreciate thought, but my wife wins on this one. I don't know what John Adams would do. Abigail Adams is a pretty tough lady. I don't know what her attitude was toward the Boston massacre. That happened, you know, fairly early in Adams' career. I think he was married. Uh, at the time to Abigail, but uh, I don't know what her attitude was. It'd be an interesting question if any of you want to look it up and see. If she uh, criticized him for doing it or if she supported him, I suspect she supported him. Is espionage actually in the name of the law or is it a nickname that has come about? No, it's in the law. It's the official title of the law, the Espionage Act of 1917. Then it has a longer title, but it's the official name of the law. And so absent an in limiting motion, and a prohibition by the judge, normally a prosecutor could get up and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Donald Trump has been charged under the Espionage Act of 1917. I think that should be prohibited. I hope it will be prohibited. I hope his lawyers will make that motion. I think they will. Uh, okay. Professor, according to the IRS Crimes Handbook, any willful attempt to evade or defeat federal income taxes is a felony. Not, Not quite. Uh, Hunter Biden's tax crimes, however, have been played down to a misdemeanor and his felony gun crime dropped with a diversion program. Is this not evidence of a two-tier justice system? No. As I explained yesterday, the vast, 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 I can go on, majority of people who file their taxes late are not prosecuted at all, not even for a misdemeanor. Um, if it's part of a, a broader system of tax evasion, sure. But if it's an isolated crime and that's all he's been charged with, then if anything, he was overcharged, but not undercharged. As far as the gun charge is concerned, I think he was undercharged. I think that's a serious crime. I think um, uh, uh, failing to disclose a history of cocaine addiction in order to get a gun really puts people in, in danger. We don't want even people who are strong Second Amendment advocates, I don't think want uh, cocaine addicts to have access to a gun. And part of the plea deal is um, Hunter Biden will never again have access to a gun. So for sex, second amendment folks, that's a pretty serious penalty. Okay. Let's see what else we have here. Uh, Professor is this channel is incredible. I feel like I'm getting a chance to hang out every week with one of history's greatest legal minds. Amazing experience. Please keep making these videos. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, And then I'd like to express my appreciation to Elon for his skill in putting together these videos with his father. These videos are absolute gold as to all who are interested in your father's thoughts and knowledge. Thank you, Elon. I know we've gotten some complaints about the background with the slanted roof. I can't control that. That's the room I'm in, the slanted roof. I think it makes it uh, interesting, but you have to get used to it. Um, Doesn't there have to be evidence of him selling or giving classified info to be charged with espionage? To be charged with espionage, yes, but to be charged under the espionage statute, no. The vast majority of people charged under the espionage statute have not been charged with espionage. They've been charged with being whistleblowers, with dissent, with resisting the war, with not being la- not, not uh, joining the draft, not signing up. Crimes uh, uh, really have no relationship to espionage at all, so the statute is misnamed. OK, remember, separation of church and state does not mean separation of God and state. People too often confuse this. No, I don't think so. I think it does mean separation of God and, and, and state. I think God has nothing to do with with uh, with well, your belief in God should have nothing to do with government. Belief in God is something you're entitled to do. You have a First Amendment right to believe in God and to express uh, your religious belief through churches. But I do think that God and churches, for purposes of the First Amendment, are the same thing. That's why I don't believe in God. We trust should be on our coins or in our, our, our our courtrooms. I don't believe that people should have to say "So help me God" when you take your oath. It's not in the Constitution, by the way. The constitutional oath of office does not include "So help me God." That's added uh, later on. So you no, know, I think God and government uh, have been separated by by the First Amendment, is not the legal issue whether the president can be in possession of such documents and whether he can be lawfully speak with people about it. I argue he is able to do both because he was the president when he came into possession of the document. Well, that just isn't the law. Maybe it should be the law, but certain things the president is entitled to do, he can do only when he's president. And that includes disclosing classified material. When President uh, Bush apparently disclosed classified material to people in his office, he was first told by his staff, please classify it and then tell him. And so he did. So, no, the fact that he was the president is not uh, enough. Um, you are correct. How could slavery have happened in the land of the free? But as an American, I also wonder how on earth could Jim Crow laws have ever existed also, Jim Crow laws were as horrific as slavery itself. I can't imagine. Um, and 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 of course, Jim Crow laws were horrible. Uh, they involved lynching. Uh, in fact, some people, some historians I listened to one the other day on NPR said that the post-slavery period was in some ways worse than the slavery period because during the slavery period at least the owners had a valuable commodity that they didn't want to die or be injured. so. They took at least some minimal care. They, of course, sold people out without their wives and children. It was horrible. Enslavement is beyond belief, horrible. But once slavery was over and 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 there was no ownership or financial interest in treating any African-American people decently in respect, that's when the Klan began. That's when lynchings began. And that's when uh, the treatment of African-Americans under the Jim Crow laws uh, became became horrible. So I don't want to compare Jim Crow slavery. They're both horrible, horrible. And, and I think we, I hope we learned our lesson. And I hope we will also make sure that slavery stops existing in parts of the world where it still exists. There still is slavery in parts of the world today. And the United States should do everything in its power to prevent that from uh, continuing. So I'm sure by next Monday, we'll have... Lots of stuff to talk about, and please continue to send me letters. I enjoy reading them, and I enjoy responding to them. Have a good week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. 18 plus.